It was freezing cold in Dallas when I made my getaway. I outran a cold front when I gave my truck the reins. Barreling down I 35 with one thought on my mind. Forget the race, find an open space, be that city. Well, hey there. Here we are again on your other side of Texas, J. West Texas Leeson, rolling along with you about midweek here, broadcasting from the Racer Car Wash Studios. Racer Car Wash, you know the routine by now. The voted Lubbock's Best Wash for five years running here in Lubbock or Leave It, Texas. Stop into one of five convenient locations in this hub city for the best wash around guaranteed racerwash.com a lot coming up for you in this episode of other side of texas we will have ross ramsey executive editor of the texas tribune chime in on what's the latest in state politics specifically within the speaker's race and then a little check-in with an event done last week at uh, Texas A&M, as much as it <clears throat> wrinkles me to say that, a rural summit there, hosted by Texas Tribune, rural is Texas, Texas is rural, get into Ross Ramsey's latest piece a few minutes from now, and then Charles Foster Johnson. I will not try to approach doing an impression of him right now. He heads up pastors for Texas children, been fighting for school finance reform, amongst other things. And guess how the tide has turned. Now all attention in the next legislature on how reforming school finance could impact those skyrocketing property tax bills. Charles Foster Johnson coming up. I first want to get into some anonymous mailbag. I get a lot of a lot of people who chime into the program on my phone through messages and emails. And to date, I've not given anybody up. You've not heard anybody publicly say, "Boy, Leeson really he threw me out into the briar patch there." Not what I do. Just trying to bring folks the truth. We've got researchers who go through stuff that I've got questions about. When it's legitimate, we bring it up to you. And that's part of uh, part of the growth of the program. And appreciate those who appreciate that. But what's not so uh, research intensive is the mailbag. Jay at other side of Texas.com. With questions, comments, overt heresy, or uh, recommendations on things that we should look into. Um, we get those in the hard mail. I've read some of those on the program. Uh, but you can also email those to get them here a little bit faster from wherever you might be mailing. Email's a good option. Margaret, I meant to bring this up last week because I've gotten this question a, a couple of times. And by a couple, I mean three or four times. Have you been afraid? <clears throat> and I don't know in what sense. What's 
what's the uh, length and duration of being afraid like for my life I don't know but have you were you afraid during Regent Gate is what Margaret had to ask me and where I would start this is no not afraid because I know fear but what I would first begin to address is is Regent Gate over I don't know I think that it's been put on pause and we'll see going into January whether or not it's over my inkling is that it is but I'm not willing to say based upon all the things we look through some of the things that are still outstanding hashtag resign already Mickey Long but no not been afraid to bring that because it's it's the truth and I have to look in the mirror at the night at the end of the day at night and uh, brush those teeth and um, and take an evaluation of myself no um, I'm not afraid here's real fear for me if I may for just a moment here's something I am afraid of we've all got our our knacks we've all got our deficits here's the thing I would rather bring an audience a big audience the news on Regent Gate and have my name muddied by political hacks on the other side whatever um, than to here's my real fear in life Margaret is not sitting behind a microphone to how many ever people by the time the medium plays out people listen online listen live listen on the podcast I never have a fear to hit the red button and to go on air to talk about whatever it may be rigor gate regent gate whatever the case might be my real fear is heights I I don't know what your fear is you're welcome to chime in 806-745-5800 but for me there is no more knee knocking that happens in my, like the equivalent of Jack Nicholas in The Shining in my life is heights I cannot whether it's getting up in my attic or putting the the lights on my roof my very thin sloped roof there at the lease in ponderosa i cannot stand heights and the idea of standing like to break all osha regulation and to stand on the top of a ladder whether that ladder is four feet six feet ten feet twelve feet fourteen an extension ladder that that is beyond the bounds i cannot handle it and i uh, just however um emasculating this might be i do not like heights matter of fact one time i tried let me just go on a little rant here before we get ross ramsey on my wife has a saying and my wife is so kick a money money i love her um feel the fear and do it anyway that's one of her mottos and one time to face my fear of heights I went up in a plane and jumped out. It wasn't with the guy on my back, but it had the rip cord. And uh, I went up, and this was in Skytook, Oklahoma. Skytook, Skytook, whatever. And uh, jumped out of a plane. I don't know how high it was, but it was me stepping out of the plane, like 
no region gate regular gate all the stuff behind the microphone i'm perfectly fine whether it's uh 2000 2 million 20 million 200 million people this is fine with me i am a-okay heights another another problem and so i went out and tried to face the fear and do it anyway went through this training for like 12 hours or whatever it was got out of the plane stepped on the wheel platform grabbed the bar that goes up from the body of the plane at a 45 to the wing and hung there and looked at the guy inside the plane he said go and i let go and i free fell for free fall free fall what anyway i'm just in the air every side everything inside of me twitching turning and um and look what good it did for me that i go down and i'm in communication with a guy on a walkie-talkie on my right shoulder and he's telling me toggle left toggle left toggle left toggle right toggle right toggle left i'm doing everything and then i don't know how many feet above the earth's surface i am but he goes radio silent and then i just have to make do i'm supposed to lay in this field i'm a long ways off from the field i go through a tree line and this was uh 10 15 years i don't know yeah about 15 years ago yeah i'm going through tree lines and i'm like trying to dodge big branches so i don't break members of my body and i land i kid you not i land some eight feet with my heels like wiley coyote in the ground i land eight feet in front of a barbed wire fence my parachute goes over my wife was videotaping the whole thing back when we had videotaping and my first instinct was to get up and find the guy who had misled me anyway um almost died they come up and they're like he says i said what happened man and he said well wait, i didn't know that you were 250 pounds i said i put it on the form he said i didn't know and uh they misled me all at say margaret no region gate doesn't scare me height scare me i tried to face the fear and do it anyway it didn't help so nothing scares me more than heights now if i have to cover something on heights one day i might just take the day off so i hope that answers your question margaret uh your texts come in 806-745-5800 quick break right here go make a little bit of money and ross ramsey on the other side of your other side of texas.com we do rave along here and we rave along with the executive editor of the texas tribune he is ross ramsey ross ramsey how are you i'm doing great how are you sir uh, good good and just i always say one of the best decisions i ever made was to ask you to be in on wednesdays i think i did that without any sort of uh knowledge but we're always with you after elections and so uh, not that we had an election yesterday but always good to have you on to break down things a week from uh ross ramsey last tuesday the house shifts 12 votes but then you get a big movement in who's going to be the speaker of the house 150 members of the house and those members will elect the next speaker 
Dennis Bonin down in Angleton. Big moves this weekend. We've had four price on, and he's talked pretty candidly about his decision to back Bonin to get out of the race. Um, numbers, we're told, were leading up to that about 40, and then after four prices um, concession, essentially, those numbers jump up to 109 in the beginning of the week. Now Bonin has a transition team. He's hired a new chief or brought in a new chief to oversee this is where i want to start that vote is not until january 8 is bond in the next speaker of the house or can something happen in between now and then well i think he's probably the next speaker of the house but something could happen i mean you know never predict the future my first rule of political reporting and you know there are two months between now and then and, you know, outside groups or outside people or even inside people who are unhappy that, you know, not that I know of one or could name one, but anybody that's unhappy about Bonin has 60 days to try to knock him off his perch and reopen this race. The actual vote of the House isn't until the House is sworn in. The 150 members who will do the electing haven't even taken office yet. And... You know, so that's a possibility. But, I, you know, I think it's a relatively small possibility. Um, it's happened once that I know of. It was a U.S. House uh, case. A guy named Bob Livingston from Louisiana was the House Speaker presumptive, and some um, damaging news about him came up before he was actually voted on, and he got knocked out of the way, and Dennis Hastert was the next speaker instead of Bob Livingston. But that's a rarity in politics. You know, basically the members of the House have decided – Dennis Bonin ought to be the next Speaker of the House. As you mentioned in your run-up, he's organizing. He's got a committee of House members trying to figure out who should be the next parliamentarian of the House. He hired a chief of staff. He's putting he's put together a transition team with former member and one-time Speaker candidate Brian McCall, who's now the Chancellor of the Texas State University System. Uh, so, you know, Dennis Bonin is rolling and, and barring something unprecedented in texas modern history um he's gonna be the next speaker he is probably or yeah he i is. believe he is I, you know I, I i don't know if i'd put the asterisk on it i'd just say he's the speaker presumptive and if you don't have any new information that's the new speaker yeah so what the reason i bring that up is because i am a student of ross ramsey and you don't predict the future, and I see a lot of action right now before January 8th, and I I couldn't wait to ask you that question today because anything could happen. Something, I shouldn't say anything, something could happen. Yeah, you have to proceed, you know, if you're, if you're Dennis Bonin or any speaker presumptive at this point, you have to assume everything's going to work out, you have to get ready for the session ahead. And you have to go as though nothing is going to happen. If something happens, you can deal with it then. But there's no reason to sit down and wring your hands and not do other preparations just in anticipation that of the outside chance that something might go wrong. Because there are, Ross, and I'm sure that you've spoken with people. I've certainly spoken with people who have been involved or were involved with the speaker's race, and they feel like the rules were changed. And there are some hard feelings there in the House. And for listeners, what I mean is they put a rule in place that the next speaker had to be elected by the caucus, by the Republican caucus, at that time was 95. And there were people who had 
had signed up to be the next speaker. You have to submit formal paperwork. And um, then they feel like the rules, some of them feel like the rules changed. Well, you know, I guess the first thing I'd say in this is, you know, that wasn't a rule, that was an intention. And the rule such as it was, or whatever you think that was, did not say that you couldn't settle the speaker's race before then. It just said that the caucus is going to get together, and our intention in that meeting is to see that the mem- that the majority of the Republican caucus um, selects the speaker and then that they stick together when it gets to the floor in January. In fact, when Bonin announced on Monday that he had 109 votes, he had more than 76 Republicans. So even without the Democrats, he had the votes to get in. In effect, he had the Republican caucus. Yeah, well, look, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, Ross, but Bonin was not, he had not signed the pledge at that time. Others had, and they felt like the rules were laid out and then uh, backtracked upon. If you have a person in a race who has not agreed to the same terms you have, you don't have terms in that race. Mm. So there weren't terms. Okay. Well, I mean, if Bonin hadn't signed any kind of a pledge or made any kind of a promise, why was he bound by it? Yeah. Well. And why would anybody else who was in the race assume that he was going to play by rules he hadn't signed off on? Well, okay. So I think that people who will are listening or will listen to this would agree. (laughs) The other the people on the opposite side of this that the rules were non-binding. And, you know, Evan Smith, your partner and co-founding the Texas Tribune, has said, and I'll, I'll cite him here, there is no jail for Republican caucus members who go to the floor and do something different. There's not a right. Republican caucus jail. Uh, Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, as we roll along here. And, you know, I throw up some of that because you had three rural members in the race, three rural Republicans. You had a Drew Darby, you had a Four Price, you had Travis Clardy, and mm-hmm. um, the folks around them scratching their heads of, at what went down this weekend. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think on this one, just, you know, let me, let, me, let me bang on this for a minute. They got outmaneuvered. They got, you know, while they were trying to gather their coalitions in the way that they were trying to gather their coalitions, Bonin was doing his, and and in this kind of a thing, that's a race. And if you're waiting for people to move as a block together and somebody else is busy picking them off, you need to be aware of everybody on the field and what they're doing. And what happened over the weekend was that they realized too late that Bonin had started the dominoes falling, and by the time Darby uh, and Clardy in particular, who were the last two really left here, uh, made their bid for Democratic votes, and that, there weren't enough Republican votes to take them over the top. The race was over by the time they were ready to close. Bonin just outran them. Yeah, and I think that, I won't speak for all three, but I think for some, the option was there to take the Democratic block and essentially do what's called the Polo Road because Joe Strauss <laughs> was elected by, what, a dozen Republicans and then a Democratic bloc, and that created all sort of consternation over the House for the better part of a decade. And um, those uh, those that had the option chose not to exercise or or pull that lever. You know, that's that's one of the things that decides whether you're going to be Speaker. When you get to 
the point where there is a way to 76 votes, which is the required number in the House, and you decide that's not the way you want to win, you probably just decided you don't want to be Speaker. If you have access to 76 votes and you don't grab it, you're not going to be Speaker. That's, you know, that's sort of the essence of a Speaker's race, and there are any number of reasons why somebody might do that, but the person who puts, you know, gets in a Speaker's race and decides to win the race by you know, look, I'm just going to outrun everybody else to 76 votes, is usually the person who becomes the speaker. Yeah, but, okay, let me let me respectfully push back here, Ross, and say sure. that... You these, don't have to be respectful. <laughs> no, I, no, but I will be. That there has been... How many... How many... Over the last decade, how much money in mailers has been sent in to rural Republican districts that mm-hmm. your guys a hack... For this guy, Joe Strauss, who was elected by Republicans, and I can certainly, I'm empathetic with some of these guys who didn't want to go down the same route, even though they had exercise. I don't think it was that they didn't want to be Speaker. I think it was that they wanted to put aside the acrimony that groups like Empower Texans can present and wanted to try to get it done, and the rules I'm going to stick with this thesis. The rules were changed by the time they understood that they couldn't change or the, they couldn't get the Democratic bloc with a substantial amount of Republicans because the rules were changed. Then they had to bow out. That's that's my thesis here. What was the change in rules? That you were going to be elected within the caucus and you signed a pledge and then and uh, had all the members the, of the speakers had everybody in the speakers race agreed to those rules. Uh, not bonding at that point. Well, then it's not. Then that's not the rules. Okay. If you if you're playing Monopoly and we agree to the rules, we'll play that way. But if we haven't agreed to rules, I can play however I want. Yeah. So we're back to there were no rules. Thank you, Ross right. Ramsey. So <laughs> let's uh, let's move forward into what uh, for listeners that are just picking up on all this. Uh, the House and the Senate have been at odds. More and more, the chasm has grown in recent years. What's your thought on Bonin, Dennis Bonin, Ella Angleton, presumptive speaker, working with Dan Patrick, who presides over the Senate? He's lieutenant governor, but he also is the president of the Senate. I've got folks telling me that it could stop infighting on the Republican side. Everybody will start singing from the Republican hymnal. Uh, now that you've got Bond in there and Patrick can say the problem was always Strauss and let's move forward. There, without a bathroom bill, without vouchers, maybe we can move forward now. I think it offers everybody a chance to start fresh. And, you know, what they do with it, you know, what we're talking about in six or seven months, you know, we'll know how they did. But, you know, you get to a certain point in a relationship, and this is the relationship between Greg Abbott and... Dan Patrick and Joe Strauss, where things aren't working really well. You know, when they stop even having the ability to get together for breakfast on Wednesday mornings during a legislative session, you've got a pretty soured up relationship. And this, you know, may turn out to be great relationships. It may turn out to be terrible relationships, but what it is right now is a fresh start, and everybody has a chance to say, okay, what's done is done. Let's start over, see what happens, see how we disagree when we disagree and see how we work together when we do agree. And 
I think that's a great open question. I think that the path Abbott takes in politics is pretty predictable. I think, you know, he's pretty well, you know, described what he wants to do. He, we've seen how he operates, how he wants to do it. And I think, you know, if you're just watching this, that's a pretty predictable player. I think the same thing's true of Dan Patrick. You know what Dan Patrick wants to do. You know how he operates. And you know pretty much how he's going to go at this. What the big variable is and the big unknown is, the X factor maybe, is Dennis Bonnet. He has a real nose for getting into the messes of the house, sometimes to fix them up, sometimes to cause them. He's going to be an interesting speaker, and he's more outspoken than most of the speakers that we've had, you know, as far back as I can remember. So I think he's going to be interesting. And we're going to see how this thing goes when you put all of these guys in the stress of a legislative session and into the inevitable debates that come up when you, you know, when you when you put legislation out for consideration. You got to remember that the state capitol like your city hall or your county commissioner's building was built to, you know, as an alternative to fighting in the parking lot. And you know, we used to fight wars over things and we decided, you know, let's go ahead and have a government we'll argue them out. But it's a kind of warfare, and it's a kind of debate, and and really you depend on a kind of honor system to see how people conduct themselves. And we now have a new player on the court, a time to restart, and we'll see how the war proceeds. Uh, Ross Ramsey, at Ross Ramsey, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you can read his newest piece there at texastribune.org. Let's pivot, even though I could go on another hour with you there, Ross, assuming that you have an hour, which you don't. Uh, let's pivot to what you saw last week. We talked before Price, or earlier this week. Was it on Monday? I think it was on Monday. Uh, for Price on his way to a rural summit at Texas A&M University. I'm sure that it was a um, a rather awkward handshake with For Price and John Sharp down there. But um, uh, Texas Tribune rural summit. Uh, what did you take away from what you saw there? All that stuff's up there at TexasTribune.org. You know, there's a there's a big section of the state. It's you know a giant geography. You know all of this if you look at a map and you know Texas. There are you know by the federal definitions 172 rural counties in Texas. They have only you know 10 or 15 percent of the population, which is still a sizable number of people. They've got all of that land. They've got a lot of our resources. They've got a lot of agriculture. There's a lot going on out there. And we wanted to talk about that as a public policy issue. And, you know, one of the things that was done at the before the start of this rural summit was a bunch of polling on how rural people think, what they think the problems are. In some ways, it's very similar to the answers that you get out of everybody else in Texas. In some ways, you know, they have some issues and some concerns that the rest of Texas doesn't have. And all of that was a way to sort of set up a conversation or set of conversations about what, you know, rural Texas is, where it wants to go, and what the people there need. And what, how do they differ, differentiate, in your view? You know, there were a couple of things. You know, the concerns are different. You know, they have, in rural Texas, they don't have the same kinds of employers that you have in some of the cities and some of the suburbs. And, you know, there are fewer job opportunities. There are fewer job opportunities for kids, which, you know, keeps the kids in the rural areas and in the smaller cities and towns around Texas. And, you know, that's a disadvantage. That's something they'd like to fix. When you ask them what the most important problem facing the state of Texas is, 
they give the same answer as everybody else. They say it's border security, it's immigration, things like that. But when you say, what's the biggest problem in your local area? Some of us were a little surprised to see drugs and crime related to drugs as the number one most important problem listed by people in rural Texas. That was sort of, that was a little bit of a surprise. Um, they have just, you know, their emphasis on uh, what's going on economically, what's going on with their areas is a little bit different. Uh, they're more likely to say that they really like the environment that they live in, that they really like the place that they live in, that they like the pace of things, that they like the lack of stress. Uh, interestingly, particularly to somebody like me who lives in a city, they're just as irked about traffic as we are. Uh, you know, when I go to rural Texas to visit my in-laws or, you know, just cross it on my way to someplace else, I always sort of breathe easy because I'm not on an Austin freeway. But everybody in Texas thinks roads are a problem. So some things they have in common, some things are peculiar or particular to rural Texas, and, you know, they fall inside the scope of what government ought to be paying attention to. He is Ross Ramsey. Yeah, again there at texttribune.org the rules that weren't rules i think that's what i would entitle this segment thank you ross <laughs> we'll talk to you soon hey uh gonna get to a break here and get our friend charles foster johnson charles foster johnson on the program and you don't want to miss that talk about public schools he's been right all along and now public schools and school finance and how that can help your property tax bills uh, he's been preaching it. He is a preacher, and we'll get him with him here. Stick with us. Quickie break, about 90 seconds. Be right back here on the other side of Texas. Uh, thank you for answering my question. I hope, yeah, I hope I did, because uh, I don't fear anything more than heights, and uh, I tried to the best I could um, face a fear and do it anyway. And not helpful uh one thing that i need to riff on as we wait for charles johnson here on the program an unspoken hero in america right now is dan crenshaw who was elected to the u.s congress an unspoken texas hero i should say elected into the texas congress uh, the u.s congress out of texas excuse me all this beto o'rourke hype and um, Dan Crenshaw making waves over the weekend. Of course, Saturday Night Live, who, like, if I know 10 people, two people watch. But um, Crenshaw writing a piece in the Houston Chronicle today, the title being, Saturday Night Live mocked my appearance. Here's why I didn't demand an apology. And if you've seen Crenshaw before, Where's the eye patch? Because he was serving in Afghanistan and a roadside bomb went off. The past couple of weeks have been unusual for me, to say the least, Crenshaw says. After a year of hard campaigning for Congress in Texas and gradually entering into the public sphere, I was hit sudden, blinding, I was hit by a sudden blinding spotlight. But I have no complaints. It wasn't as bad as some other challenges I've faced, like a sudden blinding IED. In parentheses, see what I did there. Saturday Out Live has created a comedic monster. 
On the November 3rd show, SNL's Pete Davidson mocked my appearance. Quote, he lost his eye in war, or whatever. Davidson said, referring to the eye patch I wear. His line about my looking like a, quote, hitman from a particular kind of genre that I won't say because I didn't give warning movie was significantly less infuriating than, um, albeit a little strange. I woke up on Sunday morning after the show to hundreds of texts about what Davidson said. He goes on to say that Davidson's dad died in Manhattan trying to save lives, and uh, he honored that there. And I I thought it was a great moment of how we can all in this political climate get so wound up and uh davidson's the devil and this that and other and crenshaw i think laid out a great example all that to say i'm looking forward to 2024 beto o'rourke versus dave crenshaw for the presidency but more than that for the time being what i'm looking forward to is our friend charles foster johnson right here pastors for texas children chiming in and you don't come on often enough but here you are there uh, brother jay hey good to be on your show my I, brother how I'm, are you i'm glad you must be pleased with the political needle moving towards public education now in uh, uh, mid-november yeah. moving into the next legislature we certainly weren't at this place two years ago Jay, you're exactly right. Texas communities are wrapping their arms of love and care around their neighborhood schools, and uh, Texas folks love love Texas public education, and this election uh, uh, revealed that, certainly reflected that. Uh, all we need is public leaders, uh, like pastors, business leaders, uh, real estate folks, uh, standing up for our public schools, then our politicians will follow that's what they did this election. So we're going to see a 2019 legislature very different from 2017. Uh, tell folks right quick, Charles Foster Johnson, you were in Lubbock. You have been the senior pastor. I don't know what the designation was. It Second Baptist in Lubbock. A lot of people within the immediate listening area know that voice, know your name. But tell us a little bit about Pastors for Texas Children, what you advocate for, and then we'll get into the political minutia. Well, Pastors for Texas Children was formed five years ago to out of the Christian Life Commission of the Baptist General Convention of Texas. I'm a Baptist minister. As you say, I serve the great Second Baptist Church there in Lubbock, just one of the finest congregations on the planet. Pastor Jake Maxwell is there pastoral leader now, senior pastor now, Um, and the goal, Jay, was to get all the churches of all the denominations mobilized together, that's the key word, mobilized, to support public schools. Look, here is a common uh, reality. The church loves the school, and church leaders are also school leaders, and school leaders are church leaders. And the love of God is taken by public school teachers into those classrooms each and every day by the tens of thousands. So, Pastors for Texas Children five years ago started in order to convene those faith leaders and those churches of all the denominations to do two things. To go help your neighborhood and community public school, A, 
and to stand up for good school policy B. That means you got to form two key relationships. You got to form a relationship with the educator, in most cases the superintendent or the principal, and you've got to form a relationship with your with your uh, uh, local politician. That means your house member and your Senate member, the person representing your neighborhood. And that's what has happened, and we have 2,000 people in our network, and that is helping with a lot of other good folks to move the needle back toward public schools. Uh, so could you imagine two years ago, Charles Foster Johnson, you've beaten this drum, you've been on these airways several times, not under the format of other side of Texas, but you've been on the radio with me prior to this. Could you imagine two years ago that the lead argument going into the 86th legislature would be public education and school finance? You know, Jay, people are asking me that, and thank you for your generous question. And my friend, thank you for having me on your show. You've given us a terrific platform for our message and our mission, and we're deeply grateful, my friend. Uh, Look, the fact of the matter is Lubbock folks embrace public schools. Lubbock people love their public schools. Lubbock, Amarillo, Midland, San Angelo. Uh, You get in urban centers like like Houston and Dallas and San Antonio. It's a little more complex in those cities, but those folks love their public schools also. Now, it's a little more complex because the privatizers, that is, people that want to take public money to support a private entity and make money from the public treasury for themselves off the public trust, those people aren't in Lubbock for the most part. They're not in Amarillo. They're certainly not in Floyd Ada. But they are in Dallas and they are in Houston. Uh, so there's no reason why a West Texas House member or Senate member shouldn't be 110% behind public schools, and most of them are. So to answer your question, when, when we were out in the small towns and the, and the organic communities of West Texas and East Texas, we were hearing a much, much, much different message than we were hearing from the legislature. We knew that conservative Texans loved public education. We were hearing it because those townspeople own those schools. There's a reason why we have 1,100 school districts. We own our schools. We support our schools. We give what our schools need, what we need to produce in order to educate our children. That was the message we were hearing out of the churches, out of the businesses. And why, so we were asking the question, why didn't we have a legislature that supported that? So we started banging the drum, as you say, and a pastor has a platform. It's called a pulpit, and we have a circle of influence, and it's not partisan, but it is political in the sense of power and how it's distributed. And we believe the Bible has a lot to say about that, and the Bible wants power to be distributed among all God's people, not just a few. And so we got together Republicans, mainly in small towns in West Texas and East Texas. Hey, it's Republicans. And then we went to the city neighborhoods, particularly with African-American and Hispanic pastors. Well, those places are are Democratic. And this is a bipartisan effort, and we got those community leaders and grassroots leaders together, and we have played a part. I don't know that we're the lead cow in this, but we're part of the herd. Let's put it that way. And we've been mooing awfully loudly, brother. You know we have. 
And now we have a legislature that reflects the will of the people of Texas. God be praised. Uh, Charles Foster Johnson with us here, pastors for Texas children. And I will read from the Texas Constitution here, Article 7, Section 1. Support and maintenance of system of public free schools, a general diffusion of knowledge being essential to the preservation of the liberties and rights of people. It shall be the duty of the legislature of the state to establish and make suitable provision for the support and maintenance of an efficient system of public schools. Um, it goes on to talk about the permanent school fund there and uh, i won't have you cite section two i know you could charles foster johnson <laughs> um texas does distinguish itself and leading up to the leg legislature we'll get into act 60 in arkansas i've interviewed people that's been on the back burner for me of uh, going in and consolidating school districts in arkansas that they meet a certain amount of children or they'll be bused to another place and what that leads into is the end of places whenever you mention Floydata if Floydata were consolidated with Lockney then it's going to be essentially the end of Floydata a lot of money let's look uh, let's look west from where we're broadcasting right now down to the southwest a lot of recapture money instituted by Ann Richards and her administration back years ago recapture that if you're a oil wealthy district or a wealthy district money thrown back in Charles Foster Johnson we can talk about charters and whether we want to fund with public money Christian schools madrasas whatever it may be I think that's a non-starter with a lot of people that public money ought not go to um, entities like that but I want to talk about charters here in West Texas with an audience that could pick up on this whether that be southwest or way out east east even of Abilene I've seen numbers of late that recapture dollars almost match the money that we put into charter schools in this state some will hear charter schools and say well better than it be private schools um, What's your bone, and why should people have a bone with charter schools in Texas right now? Well, you've got you've you've uh, correctly flagged several issues, Jay. First of all, let's cover let's cover for our conversation why uh, voucher schools are wrong. Uh, voucher schools take uh, public money to underwrite and subsidize a private school without any accountability or oversight. That is a violation of all kinds of conservative principles, local control, transparency, openness. We believe it's a violation of God's gift of religious liberty because we don't believe government has a proper role to advance or prohibit any religious cause. So on the advancement side, what the Constitution of the United States of America calls the establishment side, no, 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 no. The state of Texas has zero authority to uh, foster religion. That belongs in the home and the church. On the other side, on the prohibition side, nor prohibit the free exercise thereof, we want the state of Texas 
to keep their big fat nose out of our church schools. And as soon as that voucher policy is passed, here comes the state of Texas levying those assessments and that accountability. Hey, the church school was started in the first place to get away from all that. So, as you say correctly, vouchers are a non-starter. And all you got to do is look at some of those Senate members and House members that the good people of Texas just retired last Tuesday who supported private school vouchers to see that it's a non-starter in political life in Texas. Now, charters. Charter schools 30 years ago were developed in order to be an incubator for creativity and innovation. You take a small number of people always under the authority of the local democratically elected school board. Hold that thought, Jay. Originally, charter schools were under the school the, the democratically elected school board. That no longer is the case. But that charter school initially when the idea was floated 30 or 40 years ago, was to be sort of a proving ground, a laboratory for innovative practices that could be brought back in to the public school system. As you have just hit the nail on the head about, brother, now charter education is becoming an alternative parallel system of education paid for by tax dollars. Are there some good charter schools? Of course there are. Most charter schools do not produce an educational outcome superior to traditional public schools. All the data proves up that statement. So let's don't, uh, let's don't implement a second system of education by which we train our children. No. Let's recommit to the public system that is under public scrutiny public accountability, and public oversight. So now an out-of-state board can control a charter school and does routinely. So who do you call if you've got a problem that needs to be addressed? That school board member lives in Washington State or Washington, D.C. or New York or California. It is wrong for these dollars to be channeled to this alternative system of education without the proper rules and procedures. Let's level the playing field and let's let all charter schools come under the same assessment that the traditional public schools have to subscribe to. What you'll see, Jay, is you'll see those charter schools folding up and leaving town. You're seeing it anyway, brother. You're seeing it right and left anyway. After three or four or five years, guess what? The charter operators made money off the public treasury, finds out that educating our children is a tough job to do, folds up shop and leaves town. No questions asked. So what we're saying is let's call a halt to charter school expansion. Let's get a policy and for the first time, we've been very careful about this. But for the first time, we're going to endorse and embrace some kind of charter limitation that will bring public accountability, a basic raw bone Texas conservative value. Wait a minute. We don't have taxation without representation. Not in this country and not in Texas. So let's have a limitation on charter schools 
and the ones is ultimately the policy we need to have and then i'll take a breath my brother but ultimately every charter school needs to be under the authority of the local superintendent hired and fired by the democratically elected school board let's talk about local superintendents and segue into this i think that something that makes a lot of sense to people yeah, I'm laying out the issue. I'm not going to tell you where I stand on it because that's part of having the microphone and asking somebody like yourself, Charles Foster Johnson, <laughs> questions. But something that makes a lot of sense to many people is that you've got, you're duplicating resources, especially in rural areas. Let's take Lubbock County, for example. I think something that I'm not advocating again, but would make sense to people in we're going to play a portion in uh, the days to come of the sunny die meeting of the Texas Senate where they talked about taking up their school financer education reform committee and it was embraced by Democrats and Republicans in the Texas Senate that we've got to maybe not consolidate school districts but consolidate superintendents so you know this area well enough the argument would go something like this take the administration that oversees the Idaloo school district and have it oversee the shallow water school district or vice versa and therefore eliminate a lot of overhead and do that in enough places in Texas maybe you save a good dime or two on property taxes what do you say about duplicating or trimming administration in school districts that are so close to one another yeah we generally oppose that and here's why for the same reason that we would oppose consolidation of churches look local communities are unified in a geographical area Idaloo is a perfect example because folks love Idaloo and they love their Idaloo schools and if they didn't they'd move to Lubbock or they'd move out to Crosbyton, but they love Idaloo, and that's the reason they live there. And they don't want the state of Texas, a central authority, telling them that they have to come under Lubbock School. No, our tax dollars built these schools. And so we're generally opposed to that kind of consolidation. Sometimes it has to happen because of the economic realities. And we all can point, it's sad, but we all can point to small little Texas crossroads communities that have come under an adjoining neighboring district. And when you go talk to those Desdemona, let's take Desdemona, Texas, just west of Fort Worth, halfway between Fort Worth and Abilene, where uh, Jana's family ranch is. Those folks rue the day. They still grieve the day when their school was closed and they bust their kids to Gorman and they bust them to DeLeon. And the day that school was closed was the day that community began to decline. Sure. And, and I'm right there. I've written on this and, and I know the cost of losing a rural school, but what about duplicating administration from one school to another and keeping I both think schools we'd open? Be, you know, it's an interesting concept. It's, it's, if it could somehow be done, it'd be interesting if there's anybody listening that would contact us with a, a knowledgeable perspective. 
we'd certainly be open to hearing it. I mean, we're no experts on education, Jay. We're faith leaders that believe educating children's God's will. We want to do it in the most efficient way because it's a stewardship matter, and stewardship is a spiritual matter, and we believe in properly, responsibly spending God's common good money, i.e. tax dollars. We believe in that. If there could be a plan that would honor the local input and local ownership, taxation with representation, if that plan, if that principle could be followed, I think we might be open to that. It's an interesting idea. It's interesting to me that you raise it. Frankly, I've not heard a lot of conversation about this concept. What are you hearing about it? Well, I'm just, what I've got is the audio of the Senate seriously considering it. And what's crazy is whenever you go through, and whenever we do the show on it, I'll send you the audio, Charles Johnson, but what's crazy is that it is Dean Whitmire out of Houston who raises the issue of consolidation and then... It is um, Larry Taylor who pushes back and essentially says, essentially pushes back, I should say, that we don't want to consolidate school districts, but let's look at consolidating administrations. And I well, think- I, I know that I'm, I'm on your wavelength now. I remember that conversation. Uh, thanks for refreshing my memory. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's always uh, mentioned uh, in... Uh, sort of struggling to find fiscal practices that will help us save money. Everybody, you know, the, our friends on the other side uh, talk about the bloated administrative budgets. Jay, that's not correct. It's not correct. We've studied this issue. On the whole, superintendents' salaries are very modest for the leadership tasks that they perform. And those, and particularly in rural districts, my goodness, those superintendents wear so many hats and they are integrally involved in the shaping and building of our children's lives. They don't sit in some distant, isolated office all day long. They are interacting with kids. And so it's really not correct. It's just not accurate to talk about the swollen administrative budgets and we're paying superintendents too much and you know, and other administrators too much. No, these are competent professionals that work long hours at what we consider to be low pay in most circumstances. Are there some urban and suburban districts that pay their superintendents sort of sensational salaries? Sure, sure. You can you can identify some of those. I'm not going to mention them. Uh, and do, does that rankle people? Well, yeah, it does. But that's their decision. That's their local community. That's their school board decision. And if they disagree with that school board decision, hey, run for the school board. It is stage one of American democracy. But even run for the school. But even yeah. then, the, and we got a couple of minutes here. Even then, I'm going to set it up and throw you the pitch. Um, even then, to me, what. Well, it, what listeners need to understand is that 55 cents out of, on average, 55 cents out of every property tax dollar you pay goes into public education. There's even been a bill filed uh, going into the next legislature 
that it be brought into the I believe it was Charlie Guerin I, I can't remember who it was exactly a, a state representative out of the Fort Worth yeah, Representative Guerin that, Representative Guerin opening day which was yesterday day before filed a bill saying the state pay 50 percent the so state pay 50 percent five cents is, on every dollar that's what it would draw back right now uh, and that's substantial with people who live in 150 300 five hundred thousand dollar houses that feel like property taxes are on a runaway train uh, what do you so well we can let me well, let I'm me go glad. back to where i started is that before we start looking at glut or swollen administrative budgets maybe we need to start with what's the state share and what's the uh, local property tax payer share yeah the state share you know today is about 38 percent my goodness 20 years ago it was it was over it was uh over 50 percent or what was it jay you probably know the figure i think it's closer to 60 percent uh of of public school costs provided by the state so i think that it'd be responsible policy to have a cap on property taxes provided the state was paying at least 50 percent i think that's where representative garen's coming from hey before we talk about a property cap uh, a property tax cap, and let me tell you, we got a big old pushback from West Texas about that, didn't we? Uh, and local tax cap, uh, and your judges out there said, hold on, hold the phone just a minute, Austin. You mean to tell me you're going to insinuate yourself into my local community and tell us how to design and implement tax policy? And I do, I don't think so. You know, this is the kind of bloated government inter, uh, intrusion and expansion that we conservative West Texans stand against. So do we, so here's where the state's going to get that revenue, and I'm going to open up a can of worms. But we need to take a look at our, at our tax structure. We hadn't changed gasoline tax, Jay, in 30 years. And nobody's going to miss a few extra cents. Alcohol tax. Hey, we're all for it. We're all for an alcohol tax. And those two things right there would produce billions of dollars that our public schools need. But now our Tea Party friends on the other side, they're talking about eliminating the franchise tax. There's not, business doesn't call for that. West Texas businessmen and businesswomen believe in public schools and are ready to invest in them. We don't hear a big tax revolt out there in the community. Jay, we're citizens. We're not just taxpayers. We're citizens. And we have a public good called public education that is an investment in our prosperity in the future, and we're willing to pay for it in the present. He is Charles Foster Johnson. Appreciate you making time there brother charles to come on the show and uh, give us your prerogative and we assume that we're going to hear from you more going into the next legislature uh you can anytime follow, my friend follow along on twitter at at pastors the number four tx kids thank you charles thank you jay god bless y'all good to be with you uh going to take a quickie break set tomorrow up for you right here and uh all the things we got 
It's going to be great. It's going to be tremendous. It's going to be huge. Oh, man, we've got this uh, story up. Other side of Texas Facebook, if you aren't following along, go like our page there, and you'll see the sorts of things we put up. Did you know that apparently, I don't mean to gag you before dinner, or if you're eating your dinner out there on the cotton strippers, uh, if you're eating your sardines and crackers, you probably like that a lot more than what I'm about to say. But apparently, peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches are a thing. A thing. Yeah, man, some of you told me that you've gotten your Nielsen ratings in. I appreciate you uh, taking time to fill those out. Within the immediate listening area, we do rank regularly in the top 40 of Apple's U.S. news and politics and appreciate you giving us some love on uh, local radio. If you've got those Nilsons, just say, hey, I listen to KRFE AM 580, 5 to 6 p.m. That's KRFE AM 580, 5 to 6 p.m. And Lubbock, uh, because it is budget season, and uh, appreciate the advertisers on the show. If you think that we bring you the straight and the skinny, it's because good people get behind this program. The folks that you listen to, Title One, uh, uh, Lubbock File Room, Racer Car Wash, and uh, our friends there at Mullen Horton Brown, as well as the commercials that you hear on live radio. Appreciate you supporting them and telling Hey, I hang out on the other side of Texas. Um, tomorrow, speaking of Mullen Horton Brown, Brad O'Dell is going to come in from Mullen Horton Brown. We're going to talk about some legal issues that we need to be familiar with. And I don't let people on the show unless they're going to be entertaining. Brad's going to bring you informative, insightful, and entertaining content, uh, believe you me. Also, our friend Chris Level, RedRaiderSports.com, going to preview the upcoming Texas Tech football game maybe get into a little bit of basketball been to a couple of games and seems like we really miss Keenan Evans on the basketball side if uh, you're a Red Raider fan what's uh what's the play there even though Moretti is knocking down threes like it's nobody's business um we're still kind of trying to find uh trying to find the thin trying to find the center point there at Tech, I don't have any doubt that we will get there, nor do I have any doubt that I've got a great family above average dinner waiting for me. Appreciate you tuning in. We rave on here on the program. Appreciate you raving on and inviting friends to like the program as well. So I'm going to get home to that great family, above average dinner, and some... Would I rather have a peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich than go through third grade homework with twins? Because that's what I'm about to do. Um, hope that you have... It's a joy in the end. It's a joy, my friends. I hope that you've got some first world problems like I do going home. Until then, we'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of Other Side of Texas. Appreciate you tuning in and telling your friends... And we will see you from the studios where Buddy Holly became famous here. KRFE AM 580. Hasta luego, amigos and amigas.
to the 